So I'm going to be moderating this next panel. My name is Brendan Johnson, and I'm a medical student at the University of Minnesota. I am also a fellow in the Theology, Medicine, and Culture program at Duke. And my first introduction to liberation theology was actually um, a book that Dr. Weisbach mentioned in the last panel um, that, that came out of conversations with Dr. Paul Farmer and Father Gustavo Gutierrez. So I was glad to hear you mention that. Um, and I also was able to take a, a place in a course um, in 2018 with an organization called Equal Health in Mirabalay, Haiti, which was really wonderful and got to see the hospital that I, I know a number of you are tuning in from today. Uh, so I will just get going with the introductions. I, I think what, the way that I'll do it is to introduce each person and then give their remarks and then um, I'll introduce the next person before that they give and then they can give their remarks. Um, so wonderful. Okay, so I'll start with uh, Alexander Martins. So he teaches at Marquette University in the Department of Theology in the College of Nursing. Born in Brazil, he specializes in liberation approaches to bioethics, global health, and the French philosopher Simone Weil. He's been an activist for a robust single-payer health system in Brazil, and among other things, his work assesses the impacts of neoliberal changes to the healthcare system. He's translated Paul Farmer's book, Pathologies of Power, into Portuguese, and his most recent book is entitled The Cry of the Poor, Liberation Ethics and Justice in Healthcare. So welcome. Good, thank you, Brennan. Uh, so thank you everybody for, for having me here uh, today. It's a pleasure to be that in this conversation and I just want to, to jump in uh, right away in, in my presentation and have more time to discussion. So I begin by paraphrasing a statement of Paulo Freire in his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, in which he say, I am paraphrasing, liberation and justice can only happen from the poor. The poor not only liberate themselves, but also liberate the oppressor because the oppressing class nor are liberated, neither are liberated by their own actions. So the French philosopher Simone Weil developed an anthropology of suffering of the human condition from her concept of malheur and her experience among the malheurs of her time. Malheur is a very specific concept created by Weil that any English translation is not sufficient to represent what Weil means. Affliction is the most common translation, but malheur go beyond that it represents a kind of suffering that impacts all dimensions of human existence. The malheurs are those who experience malheur and feel abandoned in the world of suffering and oppression as Jesus felt in the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? This experience open to receive God's grace and expect of veils thought that I have to live to another occasion. For veils, the Malachus, or simply saying they're unfortunate, are ex experts in the human condition because they experience of oppression, suffering, and abandonment. Most of the time, they don't realize the anthropological knowledge they have because of the experience of oppression in, they, in their daily life. Therefore, uh, Vail suggests join the oppressed and learn from them and help them to move beyond their oppression, having the oppressed as agents of their own liberation. Among the unfortunate, they'll realize the oppression is a result of separation between manual labor and intellectual work. 
that is a disconnection between praxis and contemplation. The oppressed, the working class, the main unfortunate of her time were prevented from intellectual activity of contemplation. This kept them away from understanding social structures and systems that sustain their oppression with no aspiration or imagination to build a new reality. Consequently, they are not aware of the knowledge of the human condition they have and became vulnerable to oppression, the oppressor. Vulnerable, even uh, veil, even criticized the labor movement and its leaders for not understanding the source of oppression, limiting their struggles to only achieve better wages. Paulo Freire understood this source of oppression that is inside everyone's mind. The fight of the poor cannot be reduced to raise them to be part of an apt class, otherwise they will continue being oppressed. Who now can oppress by reproducing the same structure of injustice and exploitation? For both Vale and Freire, uh, for the liberation begin is necessary a process of unifying praxis and contemplation or manual labor and intellectual exercise. Joining the poor is unavoidable part of this process. Veil tried, but she was unable to develop a way of how we can work with the poor for this process of liberation. Freire advanced this perspective with his experience of education for critical consciousness. Conscientization or conscientização in Portuguese is the key concept developed by Freire that lead us to work with the poor for the reconciliation of praxis, of praxis and contemplation, in which the poor are agents of a liberating praxis. And praxis here in his real meaning, praxis, praxis and theory function together. Veil and Freire insights are resources for actions in global health and public health. First, Veil's anthropology reveals the human condition and its main experts, the unfortunate, who show to all of us who we are. This place is all in the same condition of need for care, particularly health care. Second, Veil and Freire presents that the unfortunate or the poor have something to offer and teach us. At the same time, we can work as facilitators to help them to engage in a process of unification of praxis and contemplation. This will put them in a path of liberation which, can, which they are agents of their own liberation. Third, with Freire's insights for working with the poor for conscientization, we create a process of mutual learning from below, led by the agency of the poor and we among them. Finally, this process in global and public health is a movement for justice and health care. That is creating and recreating health systems that serve all from the perspective of the human condition. It will be a fight against currently health system as perspect and perspectives dominated by the illusion that the capitalism, the free market health system creates. The Brazilian public health care system, SUS or SUS, and the attack it has been suffering in the last few years, with even support from 
the working and the poor uh, low-income classes is a great case of studies of the oppression created by separation between praxis and, praxis and contemplation. Keeping the poor far from contemplation is the goal of the private healthcare system that daily attack the Brazilian system, creating illusions among the poor and the population in general that the, the public universal healthcare doesn't work and never will. The free market, creating illusion that the free market can solve healthcare problems in Brazil. This is a lie that Freire and Veil's perspective help us to reveal, leading the poor to the historical social agency in global and public health by unified contemplation and praxis. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I love the the unification of uh, of liberating praxis and contemplation, like you're saying, wonderful. I, I will I will now go to Reverend Almost Doctor Ali Lutz, uh, who teaches at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, and who is finishing her dissertation from Vanderbilt. She brings a religious ethics background to her work in the world of health, and she has worked for Partners in Health for many years and has also spent time in large communities uh, which focus on disability and has worked as a priest in the US and Haiti. Um, her area of interest is in the intersection of power imbalances that beset work in global health and poverty relief. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. It is an honor and delight to be here in this whole conference and on this particular panel. And I'm hearing, I'm just hearing new voices and I'm hearing new sides of voices of friends and colleagues from Partners in Health and Zamni La Santé, which is the sibling founding organization of Partners in Health in Haiti. So this is just a delight and an honor. So thank you. So yes, I'm not a systematic theologian. So I don't work with the comprehensive theology of global health, although I think we have the seeds of one here today, which is exciting. I'm a social ethicist. So I deal with the formation of moral agents through Latin American liberation theology and global healthcare delivery. So I question whose knowledge is valued in the global health sphere and in the theological sphere. And I trace how this particular construction of knowledge is shaped by the coloniality of being in power that keeps uh, power in westernized or western hands. So you can, anyone can be a global health practitioner, but you kind of have to be trained by the West if you want legitimacy um, in that. Same with theology. Yes, we love to hear the voices from the grassroots, but if you really want legitimacy, you need to be trained in a Western centers of power. So I challenge that. I question whose knowledge is valued because I think uh, the coloniality of knowledge reproduces the coloniality of being in power and keeps the shape of the world as it is with its massive, grievous inequities. So I ask how Latin American liberations theologies, and this comes from you know Father Gustavo Gutierrez, the right of the poor to think, how that can create new forms of moral agency that shape global health praxis, which as my colleague, Dr. Martins, it's critical reflection and action. So how is critical reflection and action of people who have been dispossessed transformative 
of the global order? How does that contain the possibility of creating a new world, new ways of organizing our common life um, in light of the gospel demands as Dr. Weisblock pointed out so powerfully. So let me begin very briefly with my own moral formation, deformation and reformation through Latin American liberation theology and the work of global health. I'm not clinical. When I worked with Partners in Health in Zomni La Sante, I was a program coordinator, program manager, tried to help move the work forward from the um, uh, sort of administrative side, not the clinical side. Um, and I was drawn to the work because of my deep love of Latin American liberation theology, which I had studied in seminary at Emory University. We had a shout out to Methodists. I'm Episcopalian, but we can shout out to Methodists again. So I understood the material dimension of Latin American liberation theology that you can't, you have to pay attention to material um, realities that theology has to address um, concrete social conditions. I understood the root, having to look at the root causes. Um, I understood that the goal was to change the social order in light of the gospel. And that's why I loved working with Partners in Health. Its mission comes from Latin American liberation theology to provide a preferential option for the poor in healthcare. I misunderstood, so my deformation came, I misunderstood a key point of a preferential option for the poor because I had been formed as a Western humanitarian, I thought the preferential option for the poor in healthcare was the right of the poor to receive preferentially from rich people the good things of healthcare and that we shouldn't have a two-tiered system. I didn't realize quickly enough, I soon learned from my colleagues in Haiti and from Dr. Farmer, um, it's the a preferential option for the poor to co-determine and to direct and to give it critical input um, and to deliver health care for their communities. So the I use my academic work then grows out of this ah aha moment um, where I look at a preferential option for the poor as an epistemological claim of, as I said, the right of the poor to think. And I use partners in Halzamni La Sante as a case study to argue that to provide a partners in health can only provide a preferential option for the poor in healthcare insofar as it heeds the insights of people on the underside of dominant power. It heeds the insights of the dispossessed. So there are in Pathologies of Power, which Dr. Martin's translated. Um, there's this wonderful case study which when um, two HIV negative TB patients in PIH's care died, the team got together and asked what happened. Hmm, that's a liberation theology thing. Um, observe, judge, and act. They said, what happened and how can we do otherwise? Um, and because they included the community health workers who are members of the dispossessed communities whom PIH serves, it was the community health workers who said, this is a social economic issue. As soon as patients start to feel better, they start coming, stop coming to the clinic because they have this Herculean task of taking care of their families. Whereas the professionalized class, whether Haitian or the U or American or Canadian, the professionalized class said, oh, it's because superstition and as soon as they feel better, they don't believe in our medicine. And PIH 
heeded the insights of the community health workers and started including in its care a social um, package, a social service package, which I'm sure you'll hear more about um, in the next panel from Dr. Millian. Um, and it radically transformed the care. So, and all, again, when PAH provided ARVs, antiretroviral therapy, to patients in rural Haiti, um, it wasn't the idea of the nice doctors from the US. The patients themselves said, why don't we have access to these drugs? We've heard about these drugs. The price of these drugs is not set by God, it's set by humans. So humans can reset the price of these drugs. So that critical action and reflection of people who are dispossessed is I argue key to making preferential option for the poor real and manifest. And so I believe, um, and I draw so heavily on Dr. Gutierrez's work, um, which really talks about a God who overturns human categories. So I'm thinking about how do we transgress these human categories of whose knowledge counts and these professional categories so that not that the professional knowledge is unvaluable, it's tremendously valuable, but it's placed in service of the control and the determination of the people closest to suffering. You've heard this in the previous panel. This is what Dr. Wilson and Ms. Jumis uh, and Dr. Weisblock were talking about. So, but I, I approach it from a, it's an academic study question for me with practical implications. Cause I wanna say how can Latin liberation, Latin American liberation theology continue to concretely change the lives of the poor and change the structures in which we all find ourselves. So any, wherever you find yourself in the system, you're called to transgress your role, you're called to transformation, as again, Dr. Wilson said earlier. So I believe that Latin American liberation theology needs global health, needs health to stay grounded in the concrete reality of people's lives. So that um, so these are the systematic implications of this, so that theology, Latin American liberation theology doesn't remain isolated in the academy. We need global health. And global health on a systematic level, on a systemic level, needs Latin American liberation theology um, to be challenging whose who's hope matters here. You will always, if you come from um, a comfortable, if you, if you have access to these resources, your ideas for distributing them are always going to limit your aspirations for the poor. So again, Gustavo, Father Gustavo talking about um, what do we, and I'll end on this, what do we mean by the right of the poor to think? We mean the right to express, to plumb, comprehend, come to appreciate, and then insist upon that other right that an oppressive system denies them, the right to a human life. Theological reflection is the right of an exploited and believing people that struggles to throw off the shackles of oppression that drag it to the dust, to speak up and tell us about its hope. These are not the hope and critical thoughts of the nice, rich, westernized professional class. We join the people on the, on the dispossessed in their hope. And so again, I ask, what does that look like? How does that moral formation happen? So that it's not just uh, a nice idea that makes us feel good, but what are the concrete practices and patterns so that anytime 
if people who are dispossessed by the current system are not part of your observe judge act, then it's not a preferential option for the poor. And so how do we make that real? Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Les, that's wonderful. And I, yeah, I'm thinking of all the connections between what Dr. Martin said and, and to all in the last panel as well. Um, our, our last uh, today is Dr. Felipe Maya, and he is a second Brazilian on the panel, which is wonderful. Um, and he is an assistant professor at Boston University in the School of Theology. Uh, he's a scholar of liberation theology, and his work focuses on economics and politics, uh, continental philosophy, and explores how religious imagination can be a subversive force for inspiring hope and action. Thank you. Hi, hello everybody and uh, good afternoon and good morning to all of you. Uh, it's just a privilege and an honor to be here with you. Thank you, Brandon, to, for organizing and all, all of the, those of you who worked for to put this together, this event, I've, I've learned a lot so far and I'm so, so pleased to be here with you uh, with my colleagues, uh, Mark, Dr. Martins and Reverend Lutz. Thank you for your insight. Uh, my, I wanna share three uh, things with you. Um, in, I want to begin with a kind of autobiographical note a little bit that I think it's important to our context, or at least to situate myself in this conversation. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really a child of liberation theology in many ways. I was born and raised in a Methodist uh, household, in a Methodist church in the mid 80s, early 90s in Brazil, a time when the insights and the struggles of liberation theology were a little, were already kind of consolidated, at least in my education. So I grew up singing the songs of liberation theology, reading kind of Sunday school material that was written by liberation theologians that were teaching me to read the story of the Exodus and contemplate what the liberation meant for us today in this context. And, um, and, and uh, as a kind of very young, I started doing work still in the pattern, uh, perhaps under the paradigm of, of charity, but I started doing work um, in, you know, in the slums of my hometown and, and went to seminary at Methodist University. And that, you know, my seminary education started shift uh, my approach as a kind of a pastor in an ecclesial based community from the paradigm of charity to the paradigm of justice. Uh, but I wanna name one thing that I think is relevant to our conversation, which was uh, um, together with the community there, I developed uh, uh, circles of reading scripture together particularly with the women of the neighborhood uh, who, who were uh, for the most part illiterate, uh, but we were reading the Bible together and would um, oftentimes you know, end with communion and with uh, hugging and greeting each other. And I, I wanna I constantly remember the stiffness of the muscle on, the, on those women's backs. You know, when I we would hug and say goodbye, um, th they were tense their bodies were tense. And that stays with me as we think about global health, because I think that muscle tension has a history. And I'm, I'm learning with uh, global experts that, you know, the ways in which um, the human body um, consolidates and crystallizes those oppressive forces to the point where we feel tense and that there's a kind of a systemic muscle tension uh, in people's bodies. And that, um, when, I, when I read Gustavo Gutierrez and other liberation theologians, I, I'm always reminded that for them, 
for us, the poor are not just poor, they are impoverished. Right? They, they were socialized into economic and social systems that made them poor. Uh, so it's always, when we talk about the preferential option for the poor, I'm always reminding my students that the poor were made poor, right? That there were structures of oppression that uh, turned people uh, in, into a life of poverty. And I would say also into a life of, of, of unhealthy habits. So our health uh, is in, implied in those systems of power that make us unhealthy. Uh, the second point I want to make um, is related to uh, just a brief uh, kind of definition of how I, I read liberation theology. And it's very, very simple. I just uh, always introduce liberation theology as a word about God or about a, a word about the sacred, the holy that emerges in the struggle for liberation. So when people who are suffering say a word about the divine, they are producing liberation theology. And, and so... Um, the movement that consolidated as the liberation theologies and the plural emerged in the late 1960s across the globe, um, more or less simultaneously and uh, without being aware of each other. So we have the rise of the second wave of feminist theology in the United States. We have black liberation theology with James Cone. We have Gustavo Gutierrez writing a theology of liberation. We have, you know, uh, Southeast Asia and Africa, there are movements for liberation that are emerging uh, all across the globe. And they are addressing, you know, uh, God in their struggle for liberation. So um, I think uh, that we are living under similar circumstances. Um, I don't think that we are in the late 1960s, but I do think that there's something that is cracking in the social fabric of reality. And I, 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 I'm hopeful that there are, there are alternatives emerging and there are movements that are emerging. And uh, I think um, this group is an embodiment of, of those, of, of that urge for, for a new reality. Um, I began at least my intellectual journey in the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. And I think something happened there and we're still wrestling with the repercussions of, of that which happened in there. Uh, I'm thinking about large-scale movements like the Arab Spring, the Occupy uh, Wall Street movements and their repercussions in the early part of our decade, uh, Black Lives Matter movements, anti-prison movements, um, and uh, queer liberation movements. And I, I, I think we're in a global moment um, where something is emerging. And when I'm teaching liberation theology in seminary, uh, I sense that there's a generation of, of religious and spiritual uh, folk who are demanding a new type of, of liberation theologies. And, and um, not just because they have intellectual curiosities, but because there's something that is bubbling in the social fabric. And I think people are reflecting deeply on that. My third and final point uh, is more directly uh, connected to my work and economic and, and kind of Latin American liberation theology and the critique of capitalism. I, there is a, a tradition that I trace in my work that goes back to the work of, of a liberation theologian named Franz Hinkelammert, who was in Chile, living in Chile in 1973, the moment of the Chilean coup. 
which uh, that's a, a story that is not often told, uh, became the first neoliberal experiment in, in governance, right? Uh, we normally think of neoliberalism, we think of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, but neoliberalism became, you know, a policy uh, in Chile under military dictatorship. Um, so here's a system who likes to praise um, individual liberties and uh, the freedom of the markets, um, but here's a system that emerged and was uh, shaped in many ways under uh, the brutality of Pinochet in Chile. But in that context, a liberation theologian, uh, Francis Kilmert, started to articulate a kind of a theological critique of capitalist discourse. And that's the tradition where I come from, like theologically. And so my work is uh, paying attention to um, what scholars are calling the financialization of capitalism, the, the shift from uh, the center of economic activity going from industrial activity into financial speculation. Uh, but all the kind of social implications of that, one of which is uh, what uh, a feminist scholar Miranda Joseph calls the, the shift in the locus of, locus of responsibility. That is how uh, social goods such as health as education are sort of migrating from, you know, uh, the responsibility of a, a social body like the state and becoming an individual responsibility. So that shift uh, is part of uh, the neoliberal turn. And um, so when I'm seeing, you know, calls for the privatization of healthcare systems and this kind of allergy towards the idea of a socialized medicine, I, I, I'm always locating that in the context of, uh, of kind of the ideologies of, of neoliberalism. As a theologian, I'm reading that and I'm concerned about the question of hope and, and futurity. Um, and I'm suggesting in my work that um, the word futures uh, under our economic system has a dual life, right? Um, so futures is the name of a commodity that is traded in financial markets. Uh, and I don't think that is by accident. That kind of way of thinking about the future as something that can be commodified and traded and exchanged in markets to me is reflection of our the ideology, the hegemonic ideology of our time. Uh, it, the very famous study by uh, Thomas Piketty, the French economist writing about economic uh, inequality uh, has a couple of sentences throughout the book uh, that kind of um, are buried in the immense kind of economic data that, data that he shares. But the sentence is we are living in an economic system where the past devours the future. So we're kind of in the system that, uh, where the, the future is being devoured. And here I'm reminded of Gustavo Gutierrez who defined the poor as those who died before the time, right? Um, which is an expression that he learned from Bartolome de las Casas, right? Um, the 16th, in the, in the, right there in the beginning of, of the colonial story of Latin America. Uh, David Graeber, uh, you know, intellectual, um, major, uh, major figure behind the Occupy Wall Street movement, um, wrote the following about our system, our economic system. It could be well said that the last 30 years have seen the construction of a vast bureaucratic apparatus for the creation and maintenance of hopelessness a machine designed first and foremost to destroy any sense of possible alternative futures. 
Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of our economic predicament today as this ma giant machine for the creation and distribution of hopelessness. Uh, I'm reminded of the big sentence, the, the, the way that Margaret Thatcher thought of neoliberalism as the system to which there is no alternative. Uh, so I'm thinking about the movements like our movement here as movements that are uh, subversive because they are daring to speak of hope in the age of hopelessness, in the age that kind of uh, privatizes access to future, access to the possibility of hope. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, of the Christian language of hope as a way of occupying the means of production of future talk, really. That's in my work, what I'm trying to, to investigate as the, the hope that lies within Christian communities is that ability to, to say that whenever someone says that there is no alternative, we live that alternative in the now, we sort of, uh, in incorporate uh, a certain message, a certain uh, um, radical uh, attitude that says that everything there is, is not the end of the story, uh, that there, there might be some uh, emerging alternative that is always already in our midst. I'll close here. Wonderful, thank you so much. And, and I think even your early story about um, the backs of the women who, in, in the community that you were, it, it reminds me of the ways in which um, structural violence it becomes embodied. And there's there's a recent book by Eugene Richardson, and, and he said, and he tries to reframe along with many others to say like structural violence gets mediated through biological realities like overwork or like COVID nineteen, which become embodied as opposed to like. The biological reality of, you know, COVID nineteen being mediated through structures and into the body, but um, but changing that around, I, it also makes me very uh, curious. Like the notion of hope and the notion of future and the notion of changing uh, the structures and what kind of moral actors to what uh, Reverend Lutz had mentioned about. Like, like what are the kind of communities or the kind of imaginations um, that our current neoliberal capital, capitalist neocolonial imagination wants to have us step into versus what are the kind of imaginations and um, moral, what kind of moral activity and moral action do we need to have? I'm curious if you two have any thoughts about that or how we can, how can we um, improve those or what would that look like practically to make those kind of different actors? I can't begin. Uh, like it's it's a good question. Thanks, Brendan. I I, I, I like to think of uh, of the alternative imaginaries that are imaginaries that are emerging always already in those contexts of struggle. So I, I think that there is a different way of hoping, uh, a different type of way of constructing what is possible and what is to come that is emerging. So I'm, um, you know, I. I'll say one example of, of one author and one idea that comes to mind um, in my work that is important. And it comes from Fred Moulton uh, and um, who does work on black studies. And he uses the category of fugitivity to talk about that, that sense that we're sort of runaways, um, you know, of, of those who have been enmeshed in systems of power, but 
find alternatives, right? Uh, uh, what he calls the undercommons. So that is a name or a concept that is very intriguing to me. And I think it emerges out of experiences of oppressed communities that are sort of, um, you know, creating undercommons, creating kind of underground pathways. Um, I've done some work with immigrant communities and I do think that there are um, also alternative kind of imaginaries that are emerging uh, when people are confronted by, you know, um, you know, by racism and structural forms of, of exclusion of, of migrant workers and migrants. Um, so I'm always kind of trying to identify what hopes are emerging in those kind of locations. Thank you, what a great question. And I think um, also just, I love that we're bringing through the thread of the body that came from, uh, that was raised in the other panel. So I just want to name that as a theme to carry forward. Um, and this might get to, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Dr. Martin's uh, Freire's sort of conscientiousization. But I think part of learning not to take the world for granted, the world that has been given us, to see it not as the only option, not as natural, inevitable, is to lean into the contradictions the problems where you say that wasn't right because the the knowledge regime is set up to legitimate and paper right over those gaps. So it's these tiny little disruptions that I think we can lean into and say, huh? So part of my awareness of my deformation as a humanitarian, what came after the earthquake in Haiti, there was a meeting at the World Food Program headquarters in Port-au-Prince to talk about food distribution in the central plateau because people were leaving Port-au-Prince where the earthquake um, near the epicenter and coming to the rural areas where Partners in Health Zomni La Sante works. And so there was enormous pressure on the, the food systems and food sovereignty and food security of the families in our area, though we weren't most directly affected by the earthquake. Again, food, bodies, like keep these things going. So anyway, I get it. I was asked to represent, I was asked to go to this meeting, off I go. The meeting is at the UN compound in Port-au-Prince, which requires a passport for entry. It doesn't have to be a US passport, but it requires a state document to enter. And the meeting talking about how to distribute food in the central plateau was conducted in English. And there was so much talk about the agency of the people we were going to serve. And I thought, what, what possible construction can you have of the term agency? If the families who are going to receive the, their family members and need extra food aren't here. And shame on me, I didn't even see it. I didn't bring a colleague. I didn't bring, I didn't ask if a community health worker could come with me. I didn't advocate to get someone else in the room. That door was open to me because I had a US passport. I spoke English. I had a master, master's in divinity, which is not related to nutrition, but I was Western professional class. That was my only qualification. So that, that discomfort started me thinking about what do we mean by agency? What do we mean by a preferential option for the poor? And how are our westernized system of 
being knowledge and power, papering over these contradictions. So leaning into the contradictions and the gaps is a great first start. And then that'll, I think, help people with westernized forms of power from professional education and things like that listen to people who are dispossessed. So we had another, we had so many requests for, from UN agencies to um, survey our families in the Central Plateau, do a needs assessment. And I was the coordinator, the liaison, the link. So I asked a community health worker, you know, we would, the community health worker team, there's another UN agency that would like to come do an assessment. And the community health team said, Parity, I'm sure you remember this, said, no, the families will not talk to another agency because they've been surveyed no less than eight times and no one has come back with a concrete help. So we're done being surveyed. So there is the, this global health complex turning the poor into data, but not doing anything concrete or material to help them. So that again, I just, I think global health needs liberation theology and liberation theology needs global health. So, but I do think it is that problematizing, not just paper overing, papering over those gaps, problematizing those gaps the failures of legitimation lean into those. And Dr. Martin, do you have Martins? Do you have any sense of how that insights from the Frarian model of conscientization? Well, thank you. Well, in Freire, something uh, very important is his concept of history connect to that, in which he, there is no historical determinism as a new liberal capitalist society want to, to us believe, and especially the poor, that is the reality, poverty always existed, poverty is bad, that's not up to us. And, and if, you, if you work hard, you can leave poverty, but you can live, not we can move forward in terms of a better society. Uh, and one of the process of conscientization is to uh, help the poor to realize that history is built by us human beings, and they are part of history, and they should work to build their own history as a community. And that's very connected to hope. And Freire, you say, he'll say when the, he called when the transcendent, you'll be part of the imminent reality in which we are agents to build history and not simply receive that the term, that historical determinism that is because I am poor, maybe if I, me as individual work hard, I can be better, but my community, it, that's not up to us anymore uh, because the society, it, it comes from the, the, is the Western mentality, come from Aristotle. If you are born a slave, you're supposed to be a slave forever. You know, the democracy when it started in Greece was not for all, was for those elected, like chosen people somehow. And we still believe in that, in our subconscious, because that is the Western model of colonization. And this model is inside of everybody's mind. Everyone, with no exception, in, in, in a world from the poor, who aims to be rich and not aims liberation or, or justice. I, I well, as Felipe said, 
I was born also uh, in liberation theology in, in the SEBIs, the ecclesial communities, but I was engaged to the movement MST. I was like a, a child of a working out land. They would advocate for agrarian reformation and migrate from a place to another and trying to find place to live and food. And why hope for us was just find a house to live and have an inside bathroom. <laughs> you know, it was very practical. And then, but it didn't realize that we want, when I get engaged with the call, I went to school and get engaged with, uh, I mean, school, I mean, middle school, high school, high school and start to get engaged with Paulo Freire method of education. And I became like educator, like a call educador popular in the sense of to, to teaching my dad and my mom and people in that age how to write and to read, <laughs> and write in the way they can start to understand and not be prevented from that knowledge that make them believe that is that historical determinist that you cannot be moving forward as a, a community, as a society. Uh, so I think that is the way, like healthcare. Then I went to the work of healthcare uh, in Brazil the health system in Brazil that was start to be built in the late 80s, particularly in 1990, when you have the start of the unified health system in Brazil. Uh, one of the elements of the system is uh, community participation. And community participation is decision-making. That is councils of health in which people are deciding and they also, they are social controllers of the executive power in what the executive power decide for the healthcare of the community. So was built in that way, what is lacking to bring the community to come? Because who control the executive power don't want the community to come. So conscientization realized we, we can come and be part of this and make decisions because who dominate the, the power, the oppressors don't want us to be making decisions because they think we don't know anything. Yes, I'm not a physician if I'm a poor, I don't know how to do a heart surgery, but I know many think that that guy who know how to make surgery doesn't know in the reality I am. And then should create a complementarity and not a, a conflict. Uh, and to conclude like the source of oppression in Paulo Freire begin with the oppression in the mind. It's come from colonialism. He, you know, he said after he read Fanon, he changed the entire pedagogy of the oppressed to understand like how the mentality in which the poor, they don't want liberation, but they want to be the next oppressor. And works with immigrant communities in Boston, where I, I realized that from Brazilians. Brazilians came as immigrants, some to Boston. And then I realized, I, I realized Brazilian like trafficking other Brazilian immigrants to work for them because they don't live, they get better because they get the papers, but then they became the next oppressor because the mentality never has liberation. That's the, all the story of Brazil now. I work with the, the Workers' Party to build a country. We started with conscientization. My dad started and we finally got there. It took 30 years, but we, we made a mistake we didn't work in the conscientization. When you can raise the poor for upper class, 
they became the next oppressor and they, they move against their own policies that helped them to, <laughs> to be raised. And then they collapse again and in the situation where we are now. So if you don't connect that two realities that is oppressing in our mind between the manual labor, the, the capitalist market want me to be manual labor. When they want me to keep in the farm, cut a sugar can and make one hell of Brazilian currency, like 30 cents per, per day, uh, because that produced richness and not understanding that system that exists. When I start to understand that system that exists, we realize the community can move forward. And well, that's Paulo Freire. I think that is Simone Vale and, and uh, I, I trust you brought two authors I have studied recently, but they are in the core of influence of liberation theology in at least in, in my country. Uh, sorry for being a little long in my, in my answer. No, this is perfect, this is perfect. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm um, nervous to ask another question just because I know the conversation will be so good. So <laughs> I, I think with that, um, we can go into the uh, breakout room. So I'll, I'll just.